Late last year, Time Magazine ran a cover story on the current epidemic of anxiety among America's adolescents. The story reports on what all of us who work with kids already know, that the pressures on today's teenagers are so great that they're trying to navigate their lives while, as one teen says, feeling like they're climbing Mount Everest in high heels. What is anxiety? What is feeding the anxiety epidemic? How does anxiety manifest itself in kids? And how can we provide gospel-centered hope and healing for our anxious kids? We'll be talking about children, teens, and anxiety with Dr. Phil Monroe on this episode of Youth Culture Matters. From the Center for Parent Youth Understanding, this is Youth Culture Matters. If you're a parent, youth worker, educator, counselor, grandparent, or anyone else who cares about kids, we're glad you've joined us for this practical, informative, and hope-filled podcast. This is a place where together, we talk and think Christianly about the rapidly changing world of today's children, teens, and young adults. Well, welcome everybody once again to another edition of Youth Culture Matters. I'm Walt Mueller here at CPYU, and Jason Soshnick joining us as always from up on the left-hand top left-hand corner of the map. Right? That's Is that correct. where you are, Spokane? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Map of the United I'm States. I'm in Spokane right now. Yeah. So, yeah. How's your weather there? Because we have had we have had Seattle and the Northwest visiting us for about ten weeks here. And I don't want to say it's oh. been miserable, but it's... Well, we must have switched places because the weather here right now is is uh, great. And without your your humidity that you sometimes get there on the East Coast, we, we actually have had a week of sunny weather in the 80s. It's been perfect. Well, we're ready for a little so. bit of sun and humidity, so yeah, it'll be good. Well, listen, you know, at, by the way, the weather, for me anyway, is... Uh, I, I've never been fully diagnosed with this, but this whole seasonal affective disorder thing. I believe it's real because I, you know, I'm, I feel it over the winter and it's continued. And I probably need to, to talk to a counselor about that or something, but we do have a counselor on today, yeah, which we have is one great. On. So yeah. And uh, this, this kind of weather leads to tremendous anxiety for certain people, myself included sometimes when I can't get outside. Uh, but that's what we're going to talk about today is anxiety. And one of, one of the reasons I, I think it's important to talk about this, Jason, is because I know you and I, as we talk to kids, as we talk to parents, uh, we're hearing more and more about this. I know just even when I talk about social media with uh, families, with parents, I, I have a growing number of parents, particularly young moms who come to me and talk about, they don't use the word anxiety or the word anxious, but they're just overwhelmed and discouraged by the comparison that takes place as they look at what they feel they have to post about their families, what other people or other moms are posting about theirs. It just seems like everybody is on edge. And and I know you remember uh, back before the end of the year, uh, it was beginning of November, right around the time of the election last year, 2016, Time Magazine ran that cover story with a photo of an adolescent girl uh, looking fairly forlorn. And that the, the uh, the cover story, the title of it, right there on the cover was Anxiety, Depression, and the Modern Adolescent. And, you know, the subtitle was Why the Kids Are Not All Right. So over the years, we've just seen, it just seems like so much more is being heaped on kids. So we want to talk about that. 
Um, I know for you and I, you know, I, I, this has been on my mind because we're both baseball fans. Anxiety's been really real for us, right? With the teams that we follow, you had well, most definitely. As yeah. a Cubs fan, it was 108 years. Yeah, you know, it was, since we won, it was uh, what 45 since we'd been to the World Series. So, yeah, I you you get to a certain place where anxiety no longer exists, and you're just kind of hoping that something might go better the next year yeah. versus the year that you just had. So. Yeah, you're on cruise control as that's all normal, which unfortunately, as a Phillies fan, as we sit here and record this today, <laughs> the worst team in Major League Baseball, we went, Lisa and I went down last Friday night, and uh, Kenton, you actually went Sunday, I and did. it was a three-game series, and uh, to the two games we went to, both were losing propositions. They only won once. There's a lot of anxiety there. Speaking of baseball and anxiety, um, I don't know. You probably know this story, Jason, but Rick Ankeel, who was yeah. the the phenom who came up with the mm-hmm. St. Louis Cardinals. He was trumpeted as one of the two best prospects in the minor leagues. Didn't last long in the minor leagues. Went to the major leagues. I think around. I think it was 20. I'm not exactly sure when that happened, age 20, but very young. Um, he's written a book called The Phenomenon, uh, pressure, the yips, and the pitch that changed my life. And if people aren't familiar with the story, because it does, this is what's really gotten me thinking about anxiety this week. I just finished the book as a baseball fan. Uh, he was in a playoff game, had not pitched many games at all. He had been a midseason call up and was just doing great. And then through, I think, five, five wild pitches in one inning, and he said in his mind, he just lost everything. So they call this the yips. He spent years trying to come back. Sports psychologists um, resorted to alcohol and all kinds of other, I mean, anything. He tried anything, and he talked a lot just about stress and anxiety. Eventually, uh, the day after he retired uh, as a pitcher, the Cardinals asked him to come back, and they groomed him to be an outfielder, and he had quite a successful career as an outfielder. Over, uh, you know, He only wound up pitching 242 innings in the major leagues, only won 13 games, came back, after a long hiatus, and actually played 4,115 innings in the outfield. But just e- even still, as the book ends, he gets invited to throw out the first pitch at Little League games or um, even Major League games, and it terrifies him. He just doesn't want to do it. So anxiety, uh, that's wow. what we're going to talk about. So to talk about it, um, I'm really happy that Phil Monroe, uh, Dr. Phil Monroe has joined us. Uh, Phil is in Philadelphia right now at uh, Biblical Theological Seminary outside of Philadelphia, north of the city. And Phil is a psychologist. Uh, he's a counselor. He works with uh, Diane Langberg, with Langberg and Associates. We've had Diane on the podcast in the past to talk about her book, Suffering in the Heart of God. And uh, Phil's going to be transitioning here fairly soon uh, to do work with the American Bible Society out of Philadelphia. But Phil, we're so happy you're here to join us to talk about anxiety. I hope you're not anxious about this. No, it's great to be here and great to even think about baseball and all the anxiety uh, we've experienced uh, being uh, fans of teams like the Red Sox for me or the yeah. Cubs or the Phillies. So, yeah, we're, we're all in good company here. Yeah, why is it that everybody else gets the good teams? I can never figure that out, but I just, yeah, but you're a li- well, lifelong we have Red the Sox good teams. Fan, so. What are you yeah, talking you, about? Those are, I the, don't. those are some of the best. You two guys uh, do. Hey. I don't. It's just it's just <laughs> bad, 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 bad. Hey, you'll have your year. It, yours, yours will probably repeat itself much sooner than ours. Yeah, well, I hope so. 
Well, Phil, let's uh, let's jump into this. We have a lot of youth workers, a lot of parents, pastors, educators who are listening. And again, I it's not just from people who feel anxiety that we're hearing about anxiety, but youth workers are identifying this as one of the, the top issues that they face. And we want to help them today understand that and be able to respond to it. Let's let me start with this question. You know, what is anxiety? Yeah, it's we use a lot of words to describe this feeling. Uh, apprehension, anxiety, fear, panic, worry. And our English language isn't all that good at separating those uh, things apart. But I think what we want to focus on is anxiety is that experience of repetitious questions of what if, what if the next thing goes bad? So you were just talking about Rick and that question of what if, what if I pitch uh, and it doesn't go well? Yeah, let, me, let me give you a definition. Um, and, I, and I ran across this guy thanks to Tim Keller, who, you know, we both love Tim Keller. I heard a sermon uh, a few months ago that he preached on fear and anxiety. And he mentioned Rollo May. Are you familiar with Rollo May? Or? Yep. So I guess this is, uh, you would know better than I do. I'm, I'm guessing that his book, The Meaning of Anxiety, is a classic work in the world of psychology on anxiety. And um, Rollo May defines anxiety in his book this way. He says, the apprehension cued off by a threat to some value that an individual holds essential to his existence as a personality. Um I know there's a lot in there, and that's probably one we should print out so people can read it. I'm not sure I read it that well, but um, based on that definition, I mean, do you think he hits it? What would you add to that? What would you take away from that? And I'm very interested as well in, you know, the spiritual component of this, how how being a follower of Jesus and coming from the, the perspective of a Christian world and life view, how that would affect the way we, we think about or would define anxiety. Yeah, I'll even use the word worry right now because worry is taking ambiguous data and then reading it in the worst possible light. It takes a possibility of something disastrous and believing that that will be true. That is the heart of anxiety and worry. So people who struggle with anxiety then Typically, you know, something something triggers this and they automatically default to the worst case scenario. Right. Okay. It's an interpretation problem. It's and it usually is something that happens over and over again. It's not just like I have it one thought, but I have a thousand of those thoughts in a short span of time. Okay. And I'm curious, too, because you are doing a lot of work in the realm of trauma uh, is this something that over time tends to build and become the default mechanism uh, based on past experiences or environment or yeah, what contributes yes. to that? Yeah, that we can talk a little bit about some of the causes, but before we do that, maybe it's helpful just to do, uh, agree with what you said, which is once anxiety kicks off, it finds a way to enlarge and get bigger. So it's now not just problem A, but it's A, B, C, D, E, F, and it just grows if it's not checked. Okay. Yeah, this is this is fascinating because when I think about kids and especially kids who have um, endured tremendous brokenness, heartache, disruption in their young lives, the question I would have then is, is that do we need to identify who those kids are 
who have experienced the greater amount of those things and say, hey, this is someone who could uh, very easily default into uh, very quickly a lifetime, perhaps, of worry and anxiety. Yeah. Trauma-based anxiety um, usually starts off with a very real experience or experiences of things that are really bad. And so they become hypervigilant. That means they are constantly on alert, on edge for the next bad thing to happen. So it's not like they just made it up in their head. They've experienced this and their whole body is on alert looking for the next danger. Yeah. Uh, well, let me ask you about that because we've had some discussions here about that, and and I think what folks, you know, experts in the in the medical field, the psychology field, are learning uh, as we're able to do the more advanced brain imaging and um, the testing that goes on, that you know, God has created our bodies in certain ways. Not everybody, not everybody would say that it was God who did that, but I understand it to be. God created it in certain ways, and there, there's actually a physical or a biochemical component to anxiety. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how do you, can you speak to how that works? I, a little bit. Yeah. Um, I'm certainly not a neuroscientist, but um, everything we do with our bodies, whether it's worshiping God on Sunday morning, praying, or sleeping, uses our whole bodies. There's nothing we do where we sort of just cut off a certain part of us, and we can just think our way out of our bodies. Uh, So it's no surprise that uh, the mid part of our brain is very active in processing emotions. And for some people, they have a a more overactive emotional centers, the limbic system. Um, And and when that is overactive and heating up, to use layman's terms, um, it's harder for a person than to think and to counter some of those feelings. Hmm. So that can create so that a then, pattern. It, well, is that then the difference between someone that has that trauma but doesn't move to other anxiety uh, versus one that has the trauma and then moves on to multiple other forms of anxiety? Yeah, anxiety disorders, including trauma, Uh, experiences and chronic trauma are all multifactorial. So there's the experience, how intense of an experience, how early of age, how frequent was it? What kind of social support, what kind of support did the child get uh, from parents, from school teachers, from youth leaders? When you get more social support and and comfort immediately, then you're probably going to have less likely to have um, chronic symptoms. So you have all these factors together, plus the child's biological makeup. All that kind of comes together in a stew. And for some kids, it's really hard for them to deal with that anxiety. Hmm. Would you say, you know, you're a counselor, you're spending a lot of time with people, and you've, you've been doing this for, for several years. Would you say from where you sit, you see that anxiety is definitely on the rise in our culture? More people experiencing anxiety and worry and more people experiencing anxiety and worry at greater intensities as individuals. You know, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, the National Institute of Mental Health, uh, NIMH, uh, reports that anxiety disorders are on the increase. Um, and it doesn't appear just to be the case because more people are aware that anxiety exists, but that actually it is increasing. Um, it's, it's pretty hard to study this because most people carry their anxiety hidden 
and we might not see very much of it. So it seems on to be on increase. I think social media has a factor to it. Snapchat and Instagram uh, are constantly showing you what's going great in other people's lives. You know, when I was a kid, I didn't know what was going on in my friends' lives when I wasn't in school. Um, now I'm constantly barraged with evidence of that. Uh, you add to that competitiveness, pressures, uh, you know, to do well in school. And, and there's a variety of things that, that all contribute to an increasing anxiety. I think our political um, uh, world right now and what you see in news media uh, increases our anxiety about the world is not going well. Mm. What uh, among which demographic would you say we're seeing the greatest increase in, in anxiety, or, or would it be across the board, all demographics? I'm talking about age, uh, you know, socioeconomic. Is this no respecter of persons, or is it a little bit worse in some, you know, segments of the population than in others? Well, I don't think it's a respecter of persons, and I do think it's pretty much across the board. Uh, you have uh, baby boomers who are trying to figure out what does life work like when I, my body doesn't function. But I would say this, that I think adolescents especially don't have a previous life to draw on to help them through this. Um, and so for adolescents, anxiety is much more toxic to them. Mm. What kind is of there... – oh, go ahead, Jason. Well, you, well, I'm just curious if there's a difference between the anxiety that you're counseling now versus maybe 10 years ago or even 15 years ago. I, I'm, 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 yeah, I, I, I wonder as it's as it's becoming more and more if the issues around uh, anxiety are any different, or if they're just multiplied. Um, I think they're multiplied. Um, on the, I, we can always criticize social media. I think for some people, social media has helped them express their anxiety in ways to people who aren't in their community, and so maybe they are learning more about some of the symptoms you know, that they might be experiencing, and then coming into counseling and talking about it more openly. Mm. That was a good question, Jason. I like that. I uh, here's what I want to do. I want to take a break. And when we come back, I want to ask you specifically, Phil, about you, you talk about anxiety disorders. Help us understand those a little bit. And uh, then I want to come to an understanding of what anxiety, there is a way to explain this, what anxiety feels like to a person who's experiencing it. So we're talking to Phil Monroe, and he's a counselor. Uh, he's a professor of counseling at Biblical Theological Seminary, and we're talking about anxiety. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Here at the Center for Parent Youth Understanding, we want to help you stay up to date on today's youth culture. One of the tools we've developed to keep you current is our weekly youth culture e-update. Delivered to you by email, our youth culture e-update comes to you in a format that allows you to easily scroll through and quickly choose those stories and resources that will be most helpful to you in your particular setting. To sign up for this free resource, go to our website at cpyu.org, scroll down to the bottom of the page, and enter your email address in the tab marked e-update sign up. It's that simple. Welcome back to Youth Culture Matters. We're here with Dr. Phil Monroe, and Walt and I have been having a discussion with uh, Dr. Monroe on the uh, issue of anxiety. And before we took our break, we wanted to uh, get to a conversation around anxiety disorders and specifically which types exist. And so, 
Uh, Phil, would you mind just sharing uh, some of the anxiety disorders that are out there? Sure. And anxiety is on a continuum. We all experience it. Just because you have some of the symptoms maybe doesn't mean that you actually meet criteria for a diagnosis. But you can probably relate to some of these things. Panic attacks. This is where you feel like you might be going crazy. Your heart is racing. You're sweating. You can't catch your breath. Uh, generalized anxiety. Generalized anxiety can happen when you find you're anxious in just about every area of life. Your career, your future, your health, your family, your relationships. We can have social phobias. Social phobias is just a way of describing that I'm, a, I'm afraid of what other people think of me, and especially when I'm in public settings. Obsessive compulsive disorder. These are experiences where I have intrusive, unwanted thoughts, experiences, maybe about germs or maybe about feelings and thoughts that I think are just really bad. And then I try to come up with ways to, to quiet them, you know, compulsions. Um, and uh, then there can be trauma-based, as we talked about before, trauma-based anxiety. Are, are any of those that you just listed more prominent among children and adolescents? Um, uh, more prominent, I think generalized anxiety can show up a fair amount where I just find myself anxious about all aspects of life. Um, but also obsessive compulsive disorder can start pretty young. And uh, there is some evidence that it may even be triggered by a virus um, that a child experiences in utero. Um, there's some evidence that that might be a possibility as one of the causes of it. Yeah. What does anxiety feel like for a person who's experiencing it? Maybe you listed a, a bunch of different manifestations there, so maybe that's an unfair question. But in, in general terms, you know, when we think of, for example, panic attacks, I think a lot of us who maybe have never experienced that, we want to say, you know, come on, suck it up, move on, shake it off, uh, get back in the game, so to speak. But what does that, we don't understand it. What does it feel like? What, what is a person feeling, experiencing? So if you've ever been swimming and you are really tired and you feel like you can't stay afloat and you're struggling to get back up to the surface, or maybe you're at the beach and you kind of got knocked off by a wave and you're trying to get back and you've gulped a little bit of water in and you're trying not to swallow anymore, you're in a full-blown panic at that moment. That's how many people feel throughout the day. There's no waves around them that you can visibly see, but that's how they feel, that they cannot get control of their thoughts. They feel like they're drowning. And you said that some people mask it or hide it. Mm -hmm. How, if someone's experiencing that, what you just described there, and they're not telling anybody about it, are there any signals that those of us who care for them are living with them as moms and dads or youth workers ministering to them, you know, how do we, can we pick up on any signals? And, and if we think we're seeing something, how do we broach a conversation? How do we ask? Right. So one example could be, and one symptom could be a child who is overly conscientious about getting all the details right. So you may have a child who's just a straight A student and, and, concerned about getting all the details right and they're staying up very late to do their homework. Uh, on the other hand, you might see a child who goes in the opposite direction. I can't take this, so I'll just escape and I will cut myself off from most other people and shut the door 
and not let anybody in because I don't want to have to face this fact. I want to be alone. Yeah. I was going to say for that first descriptor there, you weren't talking about me and Jason. Uh, we were not that. <laughs> but then you, and I thought, I. man, I'm anxiety free. Then you got to that second part and it scared me a little bit. So, <laughs> so, so how do we oh, go ahead, Jason? Well, I'm just curious. So what do you do? How do you respond to that when you, if you're the parent of a, a son or daughter that's experiencing either one of those, what might be a really good way to be able to approach uh, uh, them if you see these signals, if you if you're noticing this? Well, let's stop with uh, let's start with the thing that you're not supposed to do, and that's tell them just stop it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Think about this. Uh, th- let's go even younger than an adolescent. Um, a young child is afraid of the dark. Um, they think there's monsters under their bed. The, the clothes look like, mo- you know, something's going on. You come into the room, you turn the light on, you say, knock it off. No, you actually come over, you comfort them. You say, oh, look over there. See that? That's just your clothes on the back of the chair. Um, let's see if we can turn on a little nightlight. It's going to be okay. So we, we do comforting and we, we maybe even validate them saying it's hard. I remember being this way. But then we give them something to do, right? That's what we need to do with adolescents and adults. We validate it, we acknowledge it, we empathize, and then we give them, hey, here's what you can do for the next five minutes. So would you, is there an aspect of emotional intelligence too that you're teaching that young child where you're helping them, you're validating their fear. The dark can be scary. Uh, but this is how, as an adult, I've learned to deal with the fear of the dark. Is that kind of what you're you're saying? Is that I don't know if I'm I'm going too far on, no, in the field, but I, no, I think you're right. Um, we validate it because bad things do happen. To tell a child, an adolescent, oh, it won't happen. Well, we don't know. We're not God, um, but we can say, what does it look like to trust God in the midst of? darkness or struggle or anxiety. Um, and here's one way that I have tried to, to do that. And then we're trying to give them something that can distract or redirect their thinking for, again, a little bit. I often say, well, what can you do? What does God want you to do in the next five minutes? Because that's all you can do. And then if you can find yourself able to set aside your worry for five minutes, then we can do 10 minutes. And if we can do 10 minutes, we can do so on. So, what you're giving us here as an answer to Jason's question is you use the words, you know, comforting your children and validating them. But now I'm thinking about the parents who are actually the ones who have unrealistic expectations, who are the ones piling the triggers, if I can use that contemporary word, onto their kids. You know, how do we deal with that? I mean, that because I see, you know, where we sit here at CPYU, we see that a lot. And as we listen to kids, we hear about academic pressure. We hear about parents, you know, with uh, spoken, well, implicit or explicit um, pressure to, to look a certain way in terms of body image and appearance, um, athletic pressure, you know, the pressure to perform out on the field. So, you know, academic appearance, athletic, and I, I know there's a lot more than that out there. You know, how... How do we push back on that? You know, as a parent, how do I become aware of the fact that I'm the that I'm the co- I'm part of the cause here? Um, yeah. yeah. A, a good friend of mine 
told me when I was talking about some of my anxieties about my adolescence was, Phil, you're not writing your children's story. God is, Mm. and they are. And when you try to get in there and control the outcome or the ending of the story, you're going to mess it up. Um, And I think amongst Christians, we're even more prone to do this because not only do we have academic um, and career performance and things like this in health, but now we also have, we want them to be good Christians and we don't want them to be sidetracked in public school settings or by social media or with their friends. And there's all sorts of dangers we want them to avoid. And so we can pile on the uh, to-dos and don't-dos. Yeah, I like that. And, you know, you're not writing your children's story. I like how you said that. And with social media, I think, too, this came to mind, we're not illustrating our children's story. You know, we're not putting, dropping the pictures in in the way that we curate uh, to yeah. create appearances is is such a big big deal. So, how, Jason, we uh, we were talking uh, a little bit during the break about faith and theology and how that figures into this. Go ahead and ask the question that you well, had. Well, I, I no, I because we're we're circling around this, and I'm just the very simple question first and foremost is anxiety sinful? Uh, I, I think that that is a great place to start this conversation. But yeah, how would you respond to that? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question, and there's not a one-size-fits-all answer. But <laughs> um, I think we're we're fairly prone to go to quickly, well, all worry, all fear, all anxiety is sin. I think we're made to feel fear. And if we are made to feel fear, then we ought to feel it in the right places, of course. If I see my child running out into the street and I need to yell and grab them so they don't get hit by a car, if I don't feel fear, I'm not running after them. And here's another question. What do you think Jesus is feeling in the garden when he says, take this from me, yeah. please, if, if, if it can be? But obviously he follows it up with, uh, not my will, but yours be done. But he comes back and asks several times more. So it's not like he just said it once and it all took care of it. And he went into some sort of uh, monkish-like uh <laughs> Response, no, he continued to be distressed. I think a better question is, what does faith look like in the midst of anxiety? Hmm. It means calling out to God. It means trusting in him, even when you are fully afraid and you don't know what's going to happen next. Mm. You, uh, calling out to God, and this is where, you know, we find such help in the Psalms, you know, where we can identify with the words of the psalmist. And Phil, I found a little blog post you wrote uh, back several months ago where you asked a question or you you attempted to answer the question, does trusting God remove anxiety? And you talked about uh, using the Psalms, and in particular, um, you went to a Psalm of Lament uh, Psalm 62.8, I think, is where you, you referred to David Pallison and something that he had written on that. Do you remember anything that you wrote about that? Or I'm, that's, that's a, I, I told you I wasn't going to ask you this. Do you remember writing these things? But I thought this was great, like this cyclical pattern that the psalmists yep. use, yep. the way that yep. you unpack that with the ability to, you know, to, to basically talk to yourself, to, to preach mm. The gospel to yourself to walk you through your fear and your anxiety. Yeah, I think the Psalms are great for these uh, expressions. You know, they're not just uh, poems that David or other psalmists wrote 
a long time ago that some are nice collection, but they're actually given to us by God, kept uh, for us, written down, and and given to us so that we can sing them too. We can say them too. So it becomes examples for us to how to express our lament, our anxiety. And it is very cyclical, Psalm 40, whether anxiety or depression, Psalm 42. David comes back, why are you so distressed? Why are you so downcast? Put your hope in, but he comes back to it again. So it's not something that if I just do it once, it's all gone. It seems like God wants us to do this. And I'll just go one step further. In the New Testament, it's not just an Old Testament thing. Uh, Luke 11 and 12 are great chapters to read back to back. In Luke 11, Jesus is calling out the Pharisees, woe to you, and it's pretty bad stuff. And mainly he's accusing them of leading the people astray. Comes to Luke 12, he says, little sheep, don't be afraid. Notice the change in tone. What is his tone? His tone is one, again, he comes back to it cyclically, you know, hey, I'm with you. It's going to be okay. Mm. Boy, this is this is uh, this is so good. I I am loving this in terms of you know practical help and being able to think through it. Uh, I'll just say this in response to to what you just said that as I've gotten older, I have realized more and more the importance of the spiritual disciplines. I know that we mentioned this a little bit at the beginning about how. Um, whatever our routine is, that's, that starts to shape us, and it shapes us in good ways when it's um, a routine with God's Word. But the need to fill our wells with God's Word because a good, a good theology of suffering, and I hear that woven in and through what you're saying here, is able to, in the dry and the parched times, uh, pull out of the well resources to sustain us and, and carry us through. So you can't emphasize enough uh, the role that the scriptures need to play in our lives when we're not worried, when we're not distressed, when we're not anxious, and filling our well with that soul. So uh, we're going to take a little break here. When we come back, I want to I want to get even more practical with some insights for parents and for youth workers as you guide us through how to help uh, walk kids and adults through this issue of anxiety. Stick with us. We'll be right back after the break. In an effort to help you help the kids you know and love navigate their emerging sexuality to the glory of God, we've launched a sexual integrity initiative here at CPYU. Thanks to a generous grant from a company called DAS, you can access our sexual integrity initiative and a growing number of resources for free by visiting the website at sexualintegrityinitiative.com. Welcome back to Youth Culture Matters. We're continuing our conversation on anxiety. Uh, I want to uh, continue this with just this question, Phil. What unhealthy and destructive coping, uh, coping mechanisms are um, anxious kids enlisting? Yeah, it could be almost anything, but some of the most common ones would be self-harm, which is cutting and Cutting is a very wide category itself. You know, some kids are just doing pinching and and scraping their skin. Others are actually doing pretty serious damage. Um, you can have people who are using any kind of substance abuse to try to deaden the pain. Pornography abuse can also be, or use of pornography can be a way of not feeling this other anxiety and putting me into this other place. Eating disorders are very common, more common in girls probably than boys, but it can also be in boys. 
any kind of ritualistic behavior, things done to try to control uh, control their sense of reality and the future. What would that, just out of curiosity as a lay, layman here in this, um, that what you just described, let ritualistic behaviors, what kinds of things would you look for there? Well, we know we talked about baseball at the very beginning, and we can probably all mention our favorite baseball players who have to tap, uh, you know, their belt buckle and tighten their gloves and step out. And these are all little rituals that people might end up doing in order because they think it somehow helps a good outcome. Hmm. So that's a form of control then. Mm-hmm. To, yeah. Now I will never watch baseball the same way. When those guys step out and they're just the gloves and the whole bit, I'm thinking, man, they got to go see Phil Monroe. Um, yeah. Hey, Phil, um, let's start to get uh, more practical here. And, yeah. You know, here at CPYU, we don't want to always, we don't want to wait, we never want to wait till there's an issue. We want to raise people's awareness so that they can, in very proactive ways, speak the truths of God's Word uh, to the realities that exist in our culture and in people's lives. Uh, we want to help them develop and enlist some preventive strategies before we get to the point where we have to respond to a crisis or a major issue in a young person's life. So with that in mind, my question is, how can parents and youth workers prepare kids to handle the kinds of difficulties and pressures of life that lead to anxiety? How can we prepare them to to handle these things in healthy, helpful, God-glorifying ways? Yeah, well, you think about a good garden takes cultivation and all uh, uh, all the right soil and things that you need in order to have a good plant. Well, similarly... Parents can be thinking about the environment. What are we doing? Are we unintentionally immersing our children into fear and anxiety because we're constantly on alert? So that's one way is to talk to parents about how uh, they are engaging with their children about the troubles in life. Um, Youth workers can be spending time with kids talking to them about what makes them anxious, right? What, where are the stressors in their lives? What are they doing about it? What do they see that works well? What doesn't work so well? Um, the more we talk about it, the less it's hidden. Mm. And so I think those are some of the main ways. And then to connect back that actually God knows you're anxious. That's why the most common uh, phrase in the Bible practically is do not be afraid because we are afraid. And so God understands and we can bring our fears to him. I love your metaphor where you talked about cultivating. It reminded me of a conversation I had about a year ago. We have a really neat greenhouse here. You go in, these guys are playing classical music, and the flowers are all just beautiful. And we've had a plant by our front mailbox for, oh, probably 20 years, a clematis plant that it grows, but it never blooms. And so... I asked the guy, I said, you know, well, what's going on here? What can I do? And he just looks at me and he says, a flower blooms when all its needs are met. A plant blooms when all its needs are met. And that's what I hear you saying here, you know, in terms of cultivating the garden. I just, that was one of the most brilliant uh, statements I've ever heard. By the way, it's not blooming again this year. I'm doing a horrible job at meeting this thing's (laughs) needs, but um, yeah. Uh, are, are there ways that we as parents and youth workers can buffer our kids? You know, what are some of the ways that we can stand in the gap and shield them? I know we don't want to do that too much because 
difficulties prepare us for the, you know, suffering consequences, dealing with hard things prepare us for the rest of life. But at the same time, we don't want to give them too much or allow too much to hit them too soon that's going to destroy them. So are there ways to buffer them and build in resiliency? Yeah, manage their social media content mm-hmm. um, and what they're seeing uh, and make sure they have time away from it. Um, this this is really important because uh, you may think you're having a very good environment, but if your child is actually friends with somebody who is suicidal or distressed, well, they're going to have the same distress because now all of a sudden that child feels responsible and also probably isn't telling the parent because they don't want their friend to get in trouble. And so there's a variety of ways that uh, social media can really add to the anxiety. And so the parent can buffer it by removing or reducing some of that. Mm. Well, that's a great word, because I think that a lot of times what happens with parents is they think about looking at what their kid has been posting and what they've been saying uh, and not always what everyone else is posting and what they're seeing. And so I think that that can be a really powerful tool for both the youth worker and the parent because, uh, like you said, if you uh, have someone that's posting cryptic things on on social media, it it might open up a door for conversation. Uh, So it's being aware much more than the world they're uh, inhabiting. It's also the world that all of their friends are inhabiting. Is that a a good way of saying that? Yeah. Exactly. That's great. Phil. Oh, go ahead, Jason. Go ahead, Walt. Well, I well, was, I was gonna, just uh, curious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, we go do for this a, a lot. Yeah. Well, I, you're talking about building buffers in parents. Um, what are some of the unrealistic expectations that we as parents put on our kids that produce and and fuel and feed anxiety? That our kids are supposed to make us look good. Um, that they are supposed to always be able to solve all their problems. Um, that they are supposed to be above average, you know, um, and those are just some of the ways that they're never supposed to embarrass us. That's can be one of those things that actually drives parents to be much more rigid and controlling. Mm. I wonder if that's changed over the years, because I, I know when I was like growing up in church, you didn't talk about your difficulties. It was more of a, a shame based thing. And I think now it has shifted from that in the church to living life out on social media and having our kids make us look good there. I, I just wonder how that's nuanced. I'm thinking out loud here. I, th- I think it's changed a little bit. The shame is different. Instead of the shame being my kid might be doing something immoral, it may be a little bit more about the shame is my child is not exceeding uh, and in the top 2% of their class. Mm. Wow. That's that's pretty powerful. Jason, you were going to ask a question before I so rudely interrupted you. No. Well, I, this is very helpful. I, the only thing that I was going to follow up on was at, at what point does counseling uh, become necessary? Mm. Uh, what are some of the things that we, either as parents or as youth workers, need to pay attention to? Because that's always the question I get with a lot of different uh, issues. But I think with anxiety, at what point does a counselor become uh, a need? That's great. I'll mention first just a few questions that any parent or youth worker can ask. You know, hey, what's going on? You know, what are you experiencing? How does it feel? And the third question is, what's the hardest part about that? Because what might be hard to you might be different from what's hard to them. And we can learn some surprising things. So you start those conversations. But of course, 
especially for parents. There's just things that kids don't want to say. They're afraid of either hurting their parents or they're getting in trouble. And so having a, a trusted counselor, especially when you're starting to see this child's not sleeping well, this child is uh, not eating well, they are withdrawing from things, they are maybe choosing some destructive uh, you know, response styles like cutting or eating disorders or substance abuse, yeah, get a counselor uh, who they can talk to and have some privacy uh, and confidentiality that they can say some things that they might not be able to quite yet say to their parent. Those are good questions to ask kids. Now, when we're vetting counselors, are there any sort of questions we can ask where we, we're going to narrow down and find a counselor who is really good at addressing this? Yeah, first off, ask if the counselors work with children um, or adolescents, because there's a number of counselors who don't. They only work with adults, and they might be great at talking to adults, but they have to use different techniques. I do less counseling with kids now than I used to, but you know, we did it outside. We were walking, we were bouncing a basketball, or much to the chagrin of the people below us, a tennis ball in the room. Um, you know, the, the art, playing chess, there's a variety of things that can be. So how do you engage with, a, with an adolescent would be a first one. Second, what kinds of techniques do you use? What is your goal? Um, and of course, you know, you're vetting also, is, does this person support uh, my child's budding faith? And what does that look like? They need to be able to, uh, you know, allow the child to even say, I'm not sure if I believe all this stuff. Um, that's essential. If the child thinks they can't say it, that's probably not good either. Yeah. And, I, and I'm just going to say the reason why I asked that question is a lot of people think, well, if I get a counselor or if I just get a Christian counselor, everything's going to be fine. And, right. you know, there's a full spectrum there of people who are qualified, maybe qualified in particular areas and not in others, and people who are just flat out qualified and some who are flat out not qualified. So I really appreciate your your advice on that. Um, yeah, go ahead, Phil. If, if you have... Um, a, a younger child or a child who doesn't like to talk all that much, you might try somebody who's a certified play therapist because play therapists use other things other than just chatting about things. They use toys and other ways to communicate and express emotion. Mm. That's great. Great, great advice there. Um, youth workers, you know, typically we think, and it, I know, I'll just think back on my own story. The younger I was, the more equipped I thought I was to deal with things. Um, when, when do we get to the point where, you know, where's the threshold where we've got to say, whoa, this is way beyond me. Um, I might want to really help this kid, but this is beyond anything I can do. And I could do more harm and damage than good if I stay involved here, here and keep this young person away from someone who really is equipped to help them. Is there a, a way to, how do we talk to ourselves as youth workers about that? Yeah. Youth workers are really on the front line, and they are sitting in a very special seat where they can talk to the child and also the parent and be able to help them both navigate this. I think probably the line is when you see some of the serious uh, uh, substance, uh, substance abuse, cutting, things like that, immediately suicidal ideation, because many anxious people start thinking about suicide because it just is the one way to get out of this mess. Um so when you see any of those things, of course, and if you see somebody who's just chronically not getting better 
and not seeming to be able to find ways around their problem, by all means, consider both counseling and maybe even a psychiatric evaluation. And I know that can scare us a little bit, but there are some people who probably would benefit from a short course of medication. Usually antidepressants are used to help bring down one's anxiety. Uh, that's not for everybody, uh, but uh, we ought not to neglect even some of those things that could be beneficial in the more serious cases. Yeah. Do you want to say anything else about medication? Because that is a controversial topic, depending on what circles you're in. And you're you're in the circles, a leader among Christian counselors, and I know that uh, there's been a lot of chatter and talk about that. But, you know, you, you just talked some sense there on that. Is there anything else you can tell us that would be helpful to us as we process the role that medication can play? Yes. Yeah, so I think medication is one possibility. Um, and for some, it's a necess- necessity. Um, it's part of God's creation that we have available to us. Just like you take Tylenol when you have a headache, there may be some psychiatric medications like antidepressants that can be very beneficial and they have shown to be effective. On the other hand, medications are not a cure-all and they don't solve all the problems and they don't build your trust in God. They don't probably detract it either though, by the way. So it's a bit of an art form for adolescents and adults to be able to figure out what's the right dosage. Is it going to work for me? It takes time. Yeah, it, it, It's not easy. It has side effects. And so a parent and a child, are they're navigating these things. What's What do I need? Yeah. And there's no one size fits all. Yeah. Phil, what I, you've talked about this a little bit, but I want to ask it more specifically. What happens if, and I know every case is there, but what happens if anxiety is left unaddressed? Spiritually, physically, emotionally, what happens if it's left unaddressed? It grows, it broadens, it widens. And so you might have only been anxious about one thing, but now you become anxious about many things. Um, So it grows that way. It disconnects us from other people. It makes us feel like we're incompetent and unable to um, unable to, to solve things. And so we end up becoming paralyzed. So yeah. it doesn't usually go away. Yeah. And we don't want that to happen. I mean, I, when I think about all the parents that I know who deeply love their kids, youth workers who care for and love kids, we want to see them flourish. So this is, this is great. Jason, do you have any last questions before I ask Phil about resources or I think that, uh, well, you, you had this question. I just want to circle back to this because I think it's a great question as we just kind of close up. But uh, I love the question that you uh, and I had kind of talked about even before the podcast, but how does the gospel speak to anxiety? I, I It's a big question. It's a broad question. But I, I, I think uh, with some of our listeners, uh, we've circled around it. I just want to be more direct with it. Would there be anything that you would add to the conversation just with regards to the gospel? How does it speak to anxiety, um, our own anxiety, to the anxiety of our kids? Yeah, the gospel is a very important part. It's the most important part because it tells us whose we are, right? We are made in the image of God. We are loved by God. And yet we don't always experience that. And so we have to hold on to little bits of it. So whether it's Psalm 131, which reminds us that we are, the visual is there, you're in the lap of the Father and being cared for him, just three verses. So it's a good reminder that God is in the business of writing our stories. 
and we can entrust ourselves to him. But we have to do it daily. It's not like we take one pill of the gospel and we no longer struggle. Good. Yeah. I, I, as you're saying that, I'm thinking to myself, you know, where we're told in this world you will have trouble. And we do we have to remember we live in a broken world. The unfortunate thing, or fortunate for us, perhaps however you look at it, is that we live in a culture where when something goes wrong, uh, we're, su- we're surprised by it because we're used to making a phone call, pushing a button, button, flipping a switch, taking a pill, and everything seems to be fixed. And God's curriculum for us is oftentimes different, and it's mm-hmm. long-term. So uh, okay. this is where God really, really works in us, and I think a theology of suffering. That's one thing I've learned personally is a theology of suffering, to develop that and understand suffering is really important, how God works in that. Phil, this Absolutely. is great, and we're, we're going to push the folks who are listening to see this as a springboard and learn more. I know we have just scratched the surface with you on your wisdom and your knowledge, but can you point us to some resources beyond this that will be helpful? And we will, for everybody who's listening, uh, post these on the cpyu.org podcast page for Youth Culture Matters. If you're listening on iTunes or some other uh, platform, you're accessing the podcast, go back to our homepage, and you'll see every resource that's mentioned, including what Phil's going to share with us right now. So tell us what you've got. You know, there's more resources on my blog, philipmonroe.com, um, and you can just search up their anxiety or trauma and get uh, any number of resources that I talk about there. I'll mention three in passing, though. Tim Sizemore, who is a Christian psychologist uh, down south, has a book or a workbook called Free from OCD, Free from OCD. And it's a workbook to help teens with obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, A pastor in England wrote the book called The End of Worry, Why We Worry and How to Stop. And he talks about his own personal um, story with that. And then if you want to know more just in general about teen and child brains and how they develop and grow well, you can look at Dan Siegel's The Whole Brain Child. And I think that can be beneficial just to give you a good overview of what's going on and why our children may not be developing the way we want them to be at that moment. Hmm. These are good. And again, we'll list all of these. Phil, before we let you go, uh, we know that you're transitioning and uh, you've got a new position that you're going to be moving to. Do you mind telling us a little bit about that? I think this is pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah I'm going to the American Bible Society and their Mission Trauma Healing Division. Um, you might wonder, why does the Bible Society care about trauma healing? Don't they just give out Bibles and translate them? And the answer is yes, but they also are interested in Scripture engagement. And they know that worry, but especially trauma-based worry, is a blocking factor. It keeps people from engaging the scriptures because they start to distance from God and from each other. And so if we can address the issues of trauma, which are around the world, and using Diane Langberg's uh, phrase, trauma is the mission field um, of the 21st century, we find that it's an avenue in for people of other faiths and also for Christians who are struggling from everything from domestic violence to uh, war issues to refugees etc. And that's a global initiative. It is a global initiative. We have, um, it's the book and the program is called Healing Wounds of Trauma. That's the materials that is used. And there are facilitators around the world. There's about a hundred languages that it's been translated into and contextualized wow. into it. 
and it's discussions around trauma and recovery from the scripture's point of view. And we'll uh, include a link to that as well, so folks can Thank check you. that out. So, well, Phil Monroe, this has been awesome, and we are so grateful for your work, for what God has equipped you to do, and for your service to the kingdom. And I'm especially happy, along with Jason, to be able to connect the dots between you and what you're doing and the people that we work with. So. Uh, youth workers, parents, tap into this great resource here, and you'll find a link to Phil's website uh, on our page. So thank you, Phil. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you very much. Yeah. So until the next time, um, you know, keep reading, keep learning, keep studying. We're trying to bring before you people who have something to say that's very helpful, and we're certainly going to do that the next time on the next episode of Youth Culture Matters. Thanks for joining us for Youth Culture Matters, a podcast from the Center for Parent Youth Understanding. If you'd like to learn more about today's youth culture, visit our website at cpyu.org. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, email us at podcast at cpyu.org.